Revelation 13, verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power, and his throne, and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth who worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of, and the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance, the patience, the endurance and faith of the saints. Now the second beast. And I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six, six. Six. When we were in Wyoming, we had a beautiful park in the town we lived. It's beautiful, gorgeous little park, baseball fields around it. They would flood the fields in the winter, and you would ice skate in the baseball fields and play hockey. And it was just this beautiful little park. A little stream went down through it. You remember that park? It's big, huge cottonwood trees. It's just gorgeous, especially in the fall. And this was before Nathan was born, and Will and Tori were little, and we'd go to the park, and they would play. It was just a wonderful time. It was close. We could actually walk to the park from our house, and uh, it's it just a wonderful time. So one day I have them at the park. I'm sitting on a bench. It's a beautiful day, and I'm sitting on the bench, and I'm reading. I, have, I had a book, and I was reading. It was a book by a Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter. And the name of the book was Reform Pastor, and it was Baxter's instructions about how to be a pastor, and it went into his ministry at Kitty Minster and everything. So I'm sitting there reading this book, and this gentleman walks up, and he sits down on the bench. There was nobody else on the bench, and he sits down, 
older gentleman, and, and after a few minutes, he says, what are you reading? And so I show him, and I'm thinking, nobody reads Puritans anymore, and he probably doesn't have a clue who this is, and that's what I'm thinking in my mind. And so I show him the book, and he goes, oh, man, a Puritan. I said, yeah. He said, I love Puritans. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, no, I love the Puritans. I like reading the Puritans. So there was a Presbyterian church in town, PCA church, and I knew the pastor there. And so I'm gearing up thinking, okay, this is a member of Jim's church because Jim talked about these things. And so I said, where do you go to church? And he goes, I'm Mormon. I'm taken back. I didn't say anything. At that time, I, I didn't, you know, and I'm, I'm just kind of taken back. I don't know if he saw the look on my face or what, but I did say Mormon. And he goes, yeah. He said, I, I go to the Mormon church here. I'm, I'm Latter-day Saint. And I did ask him, I said, what in the world, you're Mormon, what in the world are you doing reading Puritans? And he goes, oh, I love Puritans. In fact, there's, there's a group of us in the church, we love reading the Puritans. I don't know, I don't remember what else, where the conversation went after that, I, you know, but I, I'm sure we carried on conversation. I didn't know what else to say. You know, I was just kind of struck by this, a Mormon reading the Puritans, and, you know, in my mind I'm wanting to say, well, wait a minute, you know, you, well, I, well, this doesn't compute here, and so I, I don't know how the conversation ended, but, you know, it ended, we get, get the kids, go home, and so forth. Well, it was during a time, this was the early, this was mid mid to... 90s, 96, 97, something like that. And it was during a time in which the Mormon church had made efforts, and they're still making these efforts, but this was a time when they realized, hey, you know what? We probably need to make ourselves look more Christian. And there was, a, there was a concentrated effort at the time for them to start talking a lot of our same language, using a lot of the same language, talking and trying to position themselves so that they would look like just another Christian denomination. You know, you got Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Mormons. And they tried, and they're still trying that. They've still tried to position themselves. The only problem is, is that, and I, didn't, I, I know I would have remembered this conversation with him, so I know I probably didn't go here with him, but I have gone here with other Mormons. And, and, and they've talked about, oh, we don't believe in Jesus. Well, yeah, well, tell me about Jesus. And then when they start telling you about their Jesus, you go, oh, hang on a second. Wait a minute. This isn't, this isn't the Christ of the Bible. We're not even on the same planet. We're, not, we're nowhere in the same, we're not even in the same ballpark here. We don't even worship the same God. And you want to talk about believing in Jesus, but that was their goal. They wanted to position themselves to look like they were Christians. The sad thing is, there were so many Christians. There were so many. There were even some within Southern Baptist denomination, of which we were part of. There were some even within our own denomination who were coming out and saying, hey, wait a minute, we need to rethink this Mormon issue. I mean, after all, they seem like nice people, and they're talking about Jesus, and they're talking, and then there were the others who were standing up and saying, hold on a second. You got to define terms here. Listen to what they say and teach. Read their writings. 
But there was a whole lot of people who were deceived. There are still a whole lot of people who were deceived into thinking along those lines. Why, they're just another Christian denomination. They're not Christian at all. They're not Christian at all. We don't believe in the same Jesus. We don't even worship the same God. Okay? There is always, there has always been, and there will always be a counterfeit. There will always be an attempt from Satan to mimic, to counterfeit, to copy. And the purpose of that is clear. It is deception. It is deception. He wants to deceive. He tries to deceive. We're warned over and over and over in the New Testament. Paul's writings about being deceived. There's a counterfeit. There's a copy of the original. It may look close. And for the undiscerning eye, you may go away and say, well, yeah, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. No, they're not. No, they're not. Not at all. And so, when we look at the beast here, when we look at Revelation chapter 13, chapter 12, the war, the dragon, Satan, and chapter 13 sort of opens with the first beast. How is it that Satan, how does he operate? And I think we see two broad principles here of how he operates, how he's maneuvering in this war that's carried out and that's taking place as he's after the woman. He couldn't get Christ. He goes after the offspring of the woman. He comes after us. He comes after the church. He comes after the people of God. And that first broad principle that we saw is just this outright evil. The beast that comes up out of the sea. You see him coming. Outright evil. That culminates, as I mentioned last week, I think in the end it culminates. It sort of comes to a head in, I think, a future person who is the Antichrist. But in the process of getting there, there have been a bunch of them. There have been a bunch of them. And evil raises its head and it's slapped down, it's defeated, and we think it's gone, and then what happens? Here it comes again. It's defeated again. Ah, we finally got it this time, and guess what? Here it comes again. All right? So there is this counterfeit. Now, in the big picture of Revelation 12, 13, 14 goes with it too. When we get to 14, we'll see. But in the big picture of these two chapters, there, there is this counterfeit that's there. And one of the first things that we notice about this counterfeit, and I've mentioned this, is that we believe in the three-in-oneness of God, right? We believe there is one God, yet He's manifested in three separate, distinct, individual persons who do things only God can do and who are called God, and yet those three are one. Sometimes we refer to it as the Trinity, right? Well, there is this unholy Trinity as well. And it's on full display here because chapter 12, there's the dragon, there's Satan. The first beast out of the sea in chapter 13, the Antichrist. The second beast that we're about to see, he's called the false prophet. In fact, keep your finger here, turn to chapter 16. Let me show you this. Chapter 16, just a couple of chapters over. Lord willing, one day we'll get there. Chapter 16, verse 13, John says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. 
See the three here? This unholy trinity. What was coming out of their mouths? Three unclean spirits like frogs. Not just there. Turn to chapter 19. Let me show you where this occurs again. Which, by the way, I think, just like with the beast, I think it culminates, comes to a head, in a person, the Antichrist, in the end. Although the language here, the symbolic language, I think is, is, is telling us these have always been here. We'll see in 1 John just a second about that same idea. There are many Antichrists. But as with the Antichrist, so also with the false prophet. There appears to be, in the end, all of this culminates, all of this evil deception, religious deception that's going on, and has gone on, culminates, comes to a head in the false prophet. Because that's the way we just read. With the dragon, the, uh, the first beast, the false prophet. Then here again in chapter 19, verse 19, this is what we read. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. This is the first beast. The beast was captured. And with it, the what? False prophet. With it, the false prophet. So there seems to be two. Now some some take chapter 13 as being this is one beast and it's sort of like two manifestations of it. I think in the end it's going to unfold where there's an antichrist and there's a false prophet. That's, That's the way I see it. Not only here, but turn to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 10. This is the defeat of Satan. In verse 10 it says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. The devil, Revelation 12, the dragon. The devil, he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast, the beast out of the sea, I think, and the what? False prophet. This is the second beast of 13. The one that's going to come from the earth. Where the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Forever and ever. So there's this, there's almost like this mimicking going on from Satan. Is it a parody? Is it sort of, is, is he, I think the whole purpose of this is deception. As we've already seen with the first beast, there's this authority, right? He comes and claims this ultimate authority, the horns, the crowns, evidently some type of political authority, kingdoms, bringing in Daniel 7 into this and what Daniel saw in his vision. And so there's this sense in which he's claiming this ultimate authority. I have all the power and authority. Yet our Lord Jesus Christ said all authority, all power was given to him by the Father. God's the only one that's all powerful. There's also this language of this mortal wound. And what's interesting with the first beast is it's one of the heads that's wounded. As we get into the second beast, there's going to be reference to not just the head, but the whole beast. So the whole beast received this mortal wound, but it was healed. Is this a mimic of the resurrection? Is this sort of mimicking the resurrection of Christ? You know, when I just read the first part of chapter 13, you remember where it talked about how he, uh, he has uh, all the people, authority 42 months and so forth, opened his mouth, uttered blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name. That is, those who dwell in heaven also is allowed to make war against the saints. And authority was given every tribe, people, language, and nation. 
Who is it that we've already seen that Christ redeems people out of what? Every tribe, nation, people. Is there is this mimicking going on? This counterfeit being set up? No, you can have salvation in this beast, you see. You can have salvation in Him. Because to the undiscerning eye, He looks a lot like Christ. You see, I think that's what John's setting up in this. And I think that's a lot of what the symbolic language... Also, He receives worship. We're going to see with the second beast. There's even more of this that's going on in this section. There is a counterfeit. Alright? There's a counterfeit. There's deception that, that's, that's happening. People are being deceived. This, uh, this first beast operates on just sheer open evil. And as I've said, you see him coming. We run. The second beast? He slides in. He slides in, as Jude says, sometimes unnoticed. Slides in unnoticed. And then all of a sudden at the right moment, he's a turncoat. And he deceives. He deceives. He deceives. That's, as we see the appearance here, we're going to see this in the language of his appearance. But this is the thing. This is the question. that, And, and this question comes out of a conversation that, that I had. Libby and I had after the service last week. Because I, Libby, I've been thinking about it all week. How do I know? How do I avoid being caught up in this deception? Maybe a deeper probing question is, can a believer even be caught up in this deception? So tuck that question away in the back of your mind here. All right? In Revelation 12, again, there's this war, there's Satan. How does he operate? I think John, in this symbolic language, seeing these beasts, the first one coming out of the sea again, this evil comes and we see it throughout history. We've seen it rise up, kingdoms, horrible evil kingdoms, and, and we could go through and make list after list after list. We're seeing it rising up even now. In the future, it's going to be intensified, culminate in the Antichrist. And then here, the second principal way in which Satan operates is this deception of the second beast, the deception of the first or, or the false prophet. He comes, he's a deceiver. He comes and he's a deceiver. Look at the first thing that's said here, beginning in verse 11. With the second beast. He says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. First one comes out of the sea, right? The abyss, chaos, we dealt with that. This one's coming out of the earth. And notice its appearance. It had two horns like a lamb. You see, we see that horrible tyrant dictator who's slaughtering people and demanding allegiance. We see him. This one, he's going to come and he's got two horns. Is there further mimicking going on here? Do you remember chapter 11, how many witnesses? Two. Have we seen a lamb in the book of Revelation so far? Yes, we have, over and over, right? The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Is there further mimicking going on here? This sly deception? He comes in his appearance. He's not, he's not, 
you know, fangs hanging out and pitchfork and coming after, you know, it's not like that. He's not like this roaring lion that's about to pounce him. He slides in pretty sly. He slides in pretty suave and debonair. And his whole aim, you see the second thing about his appearance, and he spoke like a dragon. Now, I don't think the language is that he, he looks meek and mild, but he's got this ferocious voice. No, I think what, what's behind this is he spoke like a dragon. In other words, his aim and purpose, his goal, his whole intent here is not to come and be our friend and help us own to God, the true God. His aim, intent, and purpose is his allegiance, his total allegiance is to the first beast and to Satan. So he's not our friend. He's really not. Despite appearances, he's not our friend. So the appearance here between first beast and second beast. Now, I need you to keep your finger here. I need you to go to Revelation 17 just a second. I made reference to Revelation 17. Revelation 17 gives us more information about this beast and his acts and his workings. And Revelation 17 starts with... uh, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and the wine of those uh, sec- of sexually immoral, the dwellers on the earth. Dwellers on the earth is always referring to the pagans, always in the book of Revelation. And so he goes on and he says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. This is the first beast. The 13, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Written on the forehead, right? Some type of sign. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, persecuted the saints, killed the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise. Further mimicking here. Why does the book of Revelation open up about our Lord? Right? Do you remember how it opens up all the way back in chapter 1? Who is? Who was? And is to come. Here this beast was, is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. He's about to come out of the beast. Go to, and, uh, go to destruction. And the dwellers of the earth whose names have not been written on the book of life, uh, in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was, is not, and is to come. There's the language again. This calls for a mind with wisdom, seven heads of seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, first century, immediately their mind goes to Rome. Rome's situated on the seven mountains. Immediately their mind goes to Rome. They are also seven kings, not only seven mountains, but seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is and the other is yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while As for the beast that was and is not and is, he is an eighth. He's an eighth one, but he belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with 
the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the who? Beast. They will make war with them on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called, are, are called and chosen and faithful. Now, we'll get eventually get to 17. I only want to say this about 17 right now. In, in first century, clearly, they would have been thinking Rome. In fact, it fits. Even with the first beast, they're thinking, this is the Roman Empire. But I think in the symbolic language of what's going on in 17, together with the descriptions of chapter 13 of the beast and the false prophet, it appears that what John is doing and what God is saying is that in Rome, Rome embodies, represents all of the evil that is to come. All of the evil. Rome stands symbolically of that. And you get to the latter parts of the book of Revelation. Babylon, Babylon has fallen. So Rome stands as this symbol of this evil. And it would have been clear. It, the, the first century, if you're in the first century reading this, you would, have, you would have ticked off all of this stuff and said, yeah, I see all this in Rome. Man, all this stuff the Romans are doing. Yeah. So we'll get to 17 later. I just wanted to read that to you so that you can see the language there. We're, we're talking about the same beast, the one, the one that comes out of the sea. Now the second beast that's coming out of the earth. And here's his appearance, two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now what does it do? What are its actions? Listen to this list beginning in verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. There's authority in worship. But notice this second beast is pointing to the first beast who in turn leads to Satan. See, is there not, do you, do you see, if you're thinking here, thinking about our God and the way He's revealed Himself, do you, even though they're all equal, and they're, they're, as we talk about the three-in-oneness of God, do we not see there's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And what does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? He, when He comes, He's going to talk of me, He's going to bring glory to me. And what does Jesus say? I come to do the Father's will, bring glory to the Father. Do you not see this further mimicking that's going on here? This false prophet's going to lead people through deception. And, and what are they going to do? They're going to end up worshiping the first beast. And in worshiping the first beast, they're worshiping Satan. Now nobody would just come out, at least in their, in their mind, I don't think anybody's sane mind. All the Satan worship that you see, most of it's just fake anyway. Because at the heart of Satan worship is worshiping yourself. So if the false prophet can get you to trust your own heart and follow your own understanding, and the false prophet can come along and say to you in songs and movies and shows and all of that stuff, why you just trust yourself. Believe in yourself. We don't need God to get us out of the virus. We'll trust science. I mean, what reasonable person would say, oh no, we're not going to, no. You see the deception? And then you wake up and you go, oh my gosh, what are we worshiping? We're worshiping man. Oh my gosh, in worshiping man, who are we actually worshiping? We're worshiping Satan. You see how that works? 
I mean, it's, 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 it's happening right now. It's happening right now. So here he is, this authority, this worship. And again, it would have been Rome because there was all of this stuff that they would have seen and recognized in the first century about the Roman Empire. The second thing is these deceptive signs. So notice what it says. He's going to come, he's going to exercise authority, he's going to make the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed, by the way. His mortal wound was healed. And then it says, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. It's going to be public. He's going to do this. Fire coming down from heaven. This is interesting too. I just When you look at this and you think of it in terms of this counterfeit, who is it? Did we see anybody in scripture bring fire down from heaven? Elijah. Elijah. Guess who else we've seen in the book of Revelation where fire came out of their mouth? Two witnesses. Two witnesses. So here they are. He performs these great signs. Great signs. It's coming down from heaven in front of the people and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast before the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. See, there's the phrase again. He repeats this for some reason. This keeps continues to get repeated. I think, again, symbolically in language, yes, it's going to culminate in the end. And yes, this, this, this is going to be of antichrist and false prophet. But I think this language, mortal wound, yet lives, healed, and all this, and going from heads now to the whole beast, is symbolic of this stuff's always been here. And it continues to come. It continues to come. It was. It is. It's yet to come. This kind of stuff continues on. In, in the first century, Rome, pagan worship, pagan magic. We see some of this in the book of Acts. Rome was full of pagan magic. The emperors used it to deceive the people. So that then the people would worship the emperor. They all used it. They had all their tricks. They had all their gimmicks. And they could make the people think, oh yes, the emperor's God. In fact, some of them claim to be God. Nero claimed to be the Caesar, the Savior of the world. The time we get to Domitian, Domitian is proclaiming himself God. Blasphemy after blasphemy. And all of these magicians, and all of this trickery, and all of this deception... And again, if I'm right, and and Rome is representing all of this evil... It continues on down through history from Rome. And it's continuing right now. This trickery, this deception. But that's not all. So you see this, these deceptive signs leading to idol worship. You see that. But then verse 15, notice this. Verse 15 says this. Also it caused all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. In other words, all. Again, all those who aren't in that book, the book of life. It caused all of them to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Uh Uh-oh. Right? Oh my gosh, here we go with markings. Here we go with a mark. This has got to be Elon Musk. It's got to be Elon Musk. 
Did you just hear Friday what he did? He's implanting these computers into the brains of pigs. And the description of what they're doing, they're taking these computers and they're trying to get them small enough to put them in human brains. And they take these receptors and these leads and they attach it to different parts of the brain. And so they do this and Elon Musk goes up and pats the snout of a pig and they watch this computer screen light up where these neurons are just firing like crazy. And Elon Musk says, we hope this can work. We hope we can do this for humans because if we can do this, then we can restore sight to the blind. This is, this is just like the Roman trickery and stuff going on. Although, I mean, this stuff is pretty serious. So the mark of the beast has got to be Elon Musk, right? The mark of the beast has got to be computer chips, right? It's got to be this. It's got to be they're going to implant this stuff. If you've, have you ever read the book Feed or seen the series Feed, it's all about this kind of stuff. There's a series Humans, all about this AI, artificial intelligence. It's got to be that. The only problem with that, in the first century, they're not thinking computer chips. They wouldn't have known what a computer was. But there is something significant about markings. There is something significant about Marquis. Now, it may very well in the end play into where this is some kind of computer chipping and stuff being put in the brain and so forth. I don't know. But this is what John says here. He says they will be marked on their right hand or their forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless it has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. We'll get to the number in just a second. We'll get to the number in just a second. Here's the interesting thing about marking. Ownership is one reason why you would seal and mark. But there's also another reason why you would seal and mark, is to protect something. You remember in chapter 7? Remember when we were dealing with chapter 7 and we saw there that 144,000 and then a great throng of people? And I, I told you, I think that's a picture of the church. And it says at the very beginning of chapter 7, they were sealed. We're going to see it again in chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Then I looked and behold on the Mount Zion and, 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 and stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 again, who had His name and His Father's name written where? This is further mimicking! I can protect you. you you're mine. I can protect you. Don't trust this Lamb. We'll trust this lamb. This marking, very interesting. If you go back to the book of Exodus, and you look there, and in Exodus they're told that they are to take, when, when God's giving His law, and they are to take this, and they are to bind it on their, head, on their hands and their foreheads, and it is to be a reminder of God delivering them out of Egypt. And then when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema passage, where hero Israel, behold the Lord our God is one. And in that passage you go through and it talks about how it should be in their hearts, it should be in their mouths, they should be talking about it, they should be talking about it when they go to work, they should be talking about it in their families, and then it says and you are to bind it on your left hand, and you are to bind it right between your eyes. And then we get to the time of Christ. And we see Jesus because there were some Jews over the centuries who took this so literal. And by the time we get to Matthew, a place like Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is calling them on the carpet because He says, you're walking around with these phylacteries on your forehead so big so that it's a public symbol to everybody that you are righteous. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're a hypocrite. 
Because it was never about what was on the hand or what was between the eyes, on the forehead. It was always about what was in the heart. That's what God was after all the way back in Exodus and Deuteronomy. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, that's where it talks and it starts. It's in your heart. It's in your heart. This is one place that Satan cannot mimic. He can deceive your heart. He can take you down some horrible paths and take you into some horrible places, but he cannot change your heart the way the grace of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ changes your heart. And when he changes our heart, what does he put there? His love, joy, the Holy Spirit. You see? This marking here. Okay, now 666, right? Well, obviously, this is Ronald Wilson Reagan. Don't look shocked. Ronald, six letters. Wilson, six letters. Reagan, six letters. But give me time, I could probably work it into Donald J. Trump. Remember last week I shared with you how I had classes and the kids, they were just always, you know, and I was the Antichrist, and I'd play this game with, with the number and, and, and take their name and give, you know, numerical value to the alphabet of their name. And I could work it out, and I could, I could take you, and given time, I could take each one of us, and I could come up to where you're 666. Now, I may have to translate your name into Russian. I may have to change the spelling of your name. But I could get there. So one of the options with 666 and what John says here, this calls for wisdom that the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man and his number is 666. This is what's known as gematria. It was done and practiced in the first century. In fact, some of the archaeological evidence found some of this. There was one inscription, I think it was in Pompeii or somewhere, in which they found this inscription that said, I love her whose number is 545. Now, if you want to know who she was, you just play the gematria game, figure out who 545, and oh, lo and behold, it's Dorinda. So this was common. This is a common practice. Is that what he's doing with this? And if that's the case, then, man, I'm not going to spend the time to chase all the rabbits of all the names that have been proposed. But with all of the names, you have to do something. You either have to put it in Hebrew, you either have to use abbreviations, you either, you, nothing fits exactly despite what all the writers try to make us think. Because the writer will come along, oh, I got it, it's this one. And they go through and they give you their evidence. And what, what they don't tell you what's behind that evidence is all the tricks they had to do to make it fit. If you just pressed me and said, make a guess, if it is gematria, I would say probably the best guess is probably Nero. But I'll tell you this, I think they knew exactly who it was in the first century. I think they knew exactly who it was. Why is it lost to us? I don't know. In God's providence, it's been lost to us. Even by the second century, they were writing and trying to figure out what this was. So that's one option. You can say it's man and play tricks with the numbers. The other option is to see six as the number representing man. 
And this is a pretty viable option as well. Seven perfection, seven's the number of God. Man's created on the sixth day. Man is imperfect. Man tries to measure up to God. He can't. He always comes up short. Six, six, six. He's always coming up short. He can't save himself. He can't. And so this is, this is the number of the imperfection of man. You know what's interesting? You go back to 1 Kings. And right there, Solomon, all his wisdom and Sheba's come to him. And there's a, there's, there's a statement that's made in 1 Kings there. I think it's about chapter 10. And it's talking about all that Solomon says. And it says his intake of gold in one year. You know what his intake of gold was? 666 talents of gold. Bingo. We got it. I don't know. If, it is, if six is representing man, then is Solomon. We see just after that, what does Solomon do? He goes and marries all these women and the riches and the women turn his heart from God. And then is Solomon this picture of man trying to reach this and he can't? I don't know. I don't know. Are we going to know in the future? I think we'll see him. I think we'll know him. I think we'll know him. So all the stuff, all the ink that's been spilt over this, This is the thrust of what I think John's trying to say about the second beast. There is a counterfeit. He's got all kind of tricks up his sleeve. He's got all kind of things. And he's going to come along smooth talking. And he's going to deceive. And listen, as it gets to the end, it's going to be a strong deception. I mean, it's going to to be strong deception. Would you take those marks? How is, it out, how is it working out today? Because we see the first beast coming. And this is what we do with the first beast. We go, we don't go along with the riots. No, 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 no. We're not going to burn things down. We see that beast. We're not going to participate in burning down our town, our cities, and all of that. No, 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 no. We see that. But you know what we're giving ear to? We're giving ear to a redefinition of justice. We're giving ear to a redefinition of justice so that now justice becomes more about outcome. I mentioned this last week. And and we're we're giving ear to the redefinition of words. And that we even have some in the church who are saying, yeah, we, we need to listen to this and we need to think along these lines and we need to be using some of these things that, that, that have their roots deep within atheistic worldviews and why they, they make and help us understand. We want fairness. We want equity. We want justice. The only problem with it is slowly, deceptively, it's being divorced from any biblical understanding of justice. Because in this justice we're being offered, there is no redemption. No redemption. The only thing that we can do who are guilty is give up everything we have. That's not biblical justice. Because in biblical justice, when we see God, it's not just about outcome. Right? It's not just about the outcome of it. If we don't get the outcome, if God doesn't do what we want, then we're well within our right to rebel against God. We saw that mess early on in the Scriptures, didn't we? Now, in the justice of God, we deserve hell. 
We want equity. We want fairness. We deserve to be condemned to an eternity of suffering and torment because we've sinned against a holy and righteous God. And yet, what has He done? He redeemed. Was He just when He sent His Son into this world to die on a cross? Because see, there were some who would twist this and say, well, see, that was an unjust death. He died a criminal. He died. That was a mock trial. That was unfair. Wasn't a bad outcome. It was about justice and mercy, as the psalmist says, kissing each other in the death of Christ. Why? So that God would be just and the justifier of the ungodly. How? Remember chapter 12? How do we overcome? Through the blood of the Lamb. Through the blood of the Lamb. When we move away from that, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to the beast. And from there, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to the dragon. It's so subtle. It is so subtle. You don't want your business burned down? Take this mark. Minority owned. You remember that in the early days? You remember seeing the videos and the images in the early days of throngs of white people kneeling before someone leading them in these, in these, these acts of contrition and repentance and apology after apology. You, you remember seeing that? We will bow the knee to no one except the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for some of the athletes who have made those kinds of stands here in recent months, right? Okay, back to the, back to the original question. Though. Can we be deceived and can we get swallowed up into this and not even know it as Christians? Can I somehow take a computer chip and not even know it and think it's going to save my life and they're going to put something in my brain to help me you know, get rid of my cholesterol. They're going to do, you know, I'm going to do all this. And what about the coronavirus vaccine? What if I take a vaccine and, you know, Bill Gates has slipped some microchip in it? Am I taking the mark of the beast? Let me just give you the short answer. Absolutely not. I do not believe there is any way whatsoever that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to get duped and swept up into this unknowingly. Now, I could take the time and I could take you through some passages and we don't have the time to do that. But I could take you through 1 John and I could show you over and over in 1 John where John's talking about this. We can know this. We can know that we're in Him. And if we're in Him, I could take you and show you where John's talking about the Antichrist and you've heard He's, he's coming. I'm going to tell you there are many already here. I can take you to 1 John chapter 4 where he's talking about the Antichrist. And, and, and in that, many Antichrists are already here. They're out there deceiving already. And yet in that, there's this statement, greater is He that is in you than he that is in this world. And at the end of that section there in John 4, it talks about how He has given us His Spirit. I could take you to Romans 8 and show you where Paul says that there is the working of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer. That that working of the Holy Spirit assures that believer that they are a child of God. 
There is the working of the Holy Spirit, which is, Paul says, the seal that God has given ownership, protection. I don't think you need to fear as a believer. I don't think we need to fear as a believer that somehow we're going to get duped into this and that we're going to be deceived. Although this deception can be powerful and it will get powerful in the end. Even if possible, it might even deceive the elect, if possible. I've had people ask me about the unpardonable sin before. And after walking through the unpardonable sin and trying to explain, okay, this is what I think it is. This is what I think is going on in that passage when Jesus is talking about the unpardonable sin. I always turn and I say, look, if you're worried about whether you've committed it, you haven't committed it. You haven't committed it at all. Because if it was possible to do it, then the person who would do it, their conscience is so seared, they could care less. I will say this. If we are humbly seeking Christ and humbly seeking His Word, and humbly coming before Him, acknowledging the fact, Lord, I know I could be deceived. I don't think there's any way God would ever let one of His children be swept unknowingly into this and be condemned. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Only God could. And he's already passed sentence in Christ. Who can separate me from the love of God? Any of this? No. Am I worried? Yeah. In some sense, am I scared? Yeah. But I'm not worried and scared that somehow I'm going to lose my salvation because I somehow mistakenly get duped by the false prophet. I'm a blood-bought child of God. And as Jude says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, if you don't know him, yeah, you're fair game. You're fair game. You could believe anything. But if you want to know Him, you turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Him. He died on the cross, was raised the third day. And all He says is, trust me. Trust me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You. As we look into Your Word, we can see. And 